Let's pray together as we begin. Father, in this time of our worship where we open up your word and we hear your voice, and as your people, we have been gifted with a spirit that gives us understanding in your word. We then, Father, await you and your work in our lives as a church community, as redeemed people that have come under the blessing of the cross, the sacrifice of your Son, to accomplish the work of salvation that you began in us and that you promised to complete. We are grateful for that Spirit's influence, his direction, his enabling grace, his power. Speak to us now through your written word and grant us the ability by your Spirit's work and by your good pleasure to be conformed in all our ways to the word of the living God. We give ourselves into your hand this morning for that cause and to that end in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the New Year's message, and I know that being Sunday morning, I'm sure that there's a lot of preachers that are focusing on all the things, the resolutions that we could be making. This is a time when people talk about new beginnings. And I don't know that I've done a baptism service on New Year's Day, but if you think about this, this is really a memorial today for the work that God has done, not so much the new resolutions that we could make, but the new beginning that Christ has done for us with his sacrifice. So I want to start by reading 2 Corinthians verse five and, or chapter 5 and verse 17, where Paul writes these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This, this verse, this passage declares what our worship service this morning is going to also demonstrate. We're going to witness a believer following Christ in the waters of baptism, which pictures really the old man of sin has died and the new creation in Christ has been raised up with Christ. And that's what going into the water of baptism demonstrates. So we're not only going to hear a verbal witness for Christ, but we watch, we see the demonstration of that witness as somebody that claims to be a believer now identifies with Christ when he buried, or was buried with our sins and was raised to newness of glory. Those of us that are believers here this morning have died as well to the old man of sin. And we've been raised up in Christ. Here we are, New Year's Day, the beginning of a new year. And our worship of the Lord God will include the testimony of this new beginning with Christ that each of us as believers have experienced. And again, the testimony that we're going to witness from a young lady this morning will also include the demonstration of the saving faith that God has accomplished in her life and that each of us have experienced as we came to faith in Christ. But as she goes into the waters of baptism, we see a visible display of the old man of sin dying and the new man in Christ, or the new woman in Christ, we would say this morning, being raised up with Jesus Christ. A Christian baptism in the very act itself, pictures a new beginning with Jesus Christ, and here we are at the beginning of a new year. So is it appropriate? I would say yes, it is. When we witness a baptism at Summit Park, as you know, I like to devote our time in the Word to the instruction and understanding regarding baptism. In other words, what I'm going to preach on this morning has to do with what we're going to watch in just a few moments. 
And I think this is important for us to do for a few reasons. And I want to give you those reasons as to why we give ourselves to the study of God's word prior to or in conjunction with a baptism. First, I believe it prepares our hearts for what we are doing here this morning. When we turn to scripture, every spirit-filled believer is brought to the same unified understanding of what baptism is and what it declares, at least it should accomplish this. It's what the word of God should do for all of us. And I know there are some variations among reformed circles when it comes to baptism. But we are here today to demonstrate what this church believes and teaches from the word of God. And therefore, I hope as we look to scripture, the scripture is the thing, the voice of God is the thing that unifies us in regard to our understanding of what's taking place. At least it should. Second, our time in the word may encourage another believer to follow Christ in baptism by themselves or for themselves because of what they witness here. Now, it may be that someone has not understood the significance of baptism as laid out in the scriptures. It may be that something has prevented a believer from doing baptism or going into baptism to this point, and it may be fear. I think every one of us that comes up and is baptized, we have that little apprehension about speaking in front of people. It may also be that someone was baptized before and made a profession of faith before, but they realize now that profession of faith was not genuine. And therefore, they need to be baptized, not again, but for the first time as a believer. They may have experienced some form of ritual that was called a baptism, but if they themselves were not a true, spirit-filled gospel believer, it is not a baptism as we see defined in the Word of God. Or there may be other reasons that have kept a believer from this act of obedience. So a service devoted to baptism with the instruction of God's Word might encourage another believer that has yet to be baptized to do so out of obedience to Christ. There is a third reason that we devote a service to baptism, and that is that it gives a public declaration of the gospel itself that may lead an unsaved witness to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That may be one of you. You may be a guest here today, or you may be a young person that has been raised in the church by even Christian parents, but you yourself have not given yourselves over to trust in Christ as your Savior. Just witnessing this gospel demonstration, coming under the instruction of God's word, can be a testimony of Christ himself and what he's done for sinners on the cross. Therefore, this morning, we're going to open up God's word to a passage of scripture that gives this kind of witness for Jesus Christ and the baptism and what it sets before the church in our understanding of the new creation that is in Christ. At the end of each baptism message, I like to add three points that God's word gives for the practice of baptism. Answering the question, why do we get baptized? And these are three passages that I go through with everyone that comes to me and says, I want to be baptized. Because I want to make sure when we baptize a person, that person understands what they are doing And why they are doing it. I'm going to select one of those passages this morning. So I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. And look at verse 29 down through verse 42. You can follow along as I read. But this chapter in the book of Acts 
gives the account of the Holy Spirit descending on on approximately 120 believers that were gathered together in Jerusalem. Jesus had directed his apostles, go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Spirit there. And those 12 apostles with some others gathering to the number of about 120 souls, were gathered in Jerusalem waiting for the coming of the Spirit, which happened on the festival of Pentecost. That Jewish celebration, remember, followed 50 days after Passover, and it was a festival that was commemorating God's provision, his first fruits that he provided for his people. It was the first of the harvest. And so you can see the significance of the Spirit descending on that day, which was a festival ordained by God for Israel to observe God bringing in the first fruit of his blessing of the harvest. Because here is going to be the manifestation of the first fruit of the Spirit coming and producing witnesses, producing saved people. When the Holy Spirit came upon the, Holy, the apostles and the believers with them, we read in Acts 2 that they began speaking in tongues. There was a violent rushing wind sound that entered where they had gathered together. And there appeared these flaming tongues. And the Spirit descended on those believers and they went out into Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel each in a language of the people that were gathered there for that festival. And the people marveled at the power of what God was doing. It was Peter that was gathered with the other apostles under the filling of the Holy Spirit that preached a gospel sermon that was driven by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It was a sermon that referenced the Old Testament prophecies regarding Messiah, but it was a sermon also that condemned the Jewish people that just weeks before had murdered that Messiah. Jesus Christ crucifying him on a cross. It's in this sermon that Peter declared Jesus to be the promised Savior sent from heaven, raised from the dead by God the Father. And I want to pick up in verse 29, if you'll follow along with me. This is the sermon Peter continued to preach. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I was drawn especially in this passage to verse 39, which reminds us that salvation for each and every believer is a work of God. This accomplished, this this marvelous revival here in Jerusalem was all under the calling of God. And it was not just for the Jews, note, but it was for those who were far off as well. And this is a reference to men and women from all nations well beyond the borders of Israel. But each one that is saved, Jew and Gentile alike, has been called by the Lord God himself. And therefore, as Peter preached on that first gospel revival, God was calling sinners to faith in his son, and some 3,000 responded to the gospel and were saved that day. I want to look at this passage in three parts this morning, and the focus will be not necessarily baptism, but what baptism is representing here, what it's declaring. We begin with the conviction of God, the calling of God that brought conviction and led to conversion. When Peter finished preaching, he ended with a call to the unsaved household of Israel. His call was not what we often hear as as an end-of-sermon invitation. But Peter's invitation was really a challenge to unbelievers to know with conviction that Jesus Christ, the one whom the Jews had crucified, was and is the one true Messiah of God. He was the Savior, Jesus Christ, sent by God from heaven. Now, there are several details evident of what was about to take place in God's calling of these 3,000 Jews. First, it is obvious in verse 37, the gospel was preached and it was heard. That's how this starts off, when they heard this. When they heard what? They heard the sermon just preached by Peter, the spirit-filled sermon, the sermon that exemplified Jesus Christ as the Savior, the Messiah. Now, when they heard this, it says in verse 37, the gospel was preached, it was heard. This is why Paul writes to the church in Rome, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel has to be preached. It has to be proclaimed. And it begins with that unsaved person hearing the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, because of this, Paul went on to say, or quoting from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the few of those who bring good news. In other words, God uses human vessels to proclaim this marvelous message that comes with good news. And because of it, God chooses to work his calling through that human proclamation. As many scholars will point out about this text in Acts chapter 2, we are not reading all of Peter's sermon. In fact, in verse 40, it tells us that. Peter had much more to say, but Luke only records a certain part of that sermon. And he does so under the pressing of the Holy Spirit. So we can be assured that this text before us in Acts 2 gives us everything we need to know about that sermon that Peter preached, though he preached more words than this. And what is critical to the content of this spirit-inspired message is, again, the truth about a person, Jesus Christ, Son of God, that Christ was sent by God. 
He was crucified by men, but he was delivered over, it said, by the predetermined counsel or knowledge of God. By his foreknowledge, God ordained this to happen. And it was God also that raised Jesus from the dead. Peter wanted his audience to know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what God prophesied, that Christ is coming. Out of the Old Testament scriptures, it was ordained. He was the fulfillment of God's predetermined plan of salvation at the hands of these Jews and Roman government. It was also important to the gospel preaching of Peter that his audience know that Jesus is the Lord God, and at that moment as he is today, he is seated at the right hand of the Father as the Lord himself. This crowd had just witnessed the Spirit's power at work as they heard the gospel being preached, each in their own language. And they marveled at what was taking place. And here Peter's letting him know, Jesus, Son of God, is directing this scene. He's the focal point of this sermon, and he is therefore, and here's the call from Peter, the invitation, if you will, verse 36. He's the one to know with certainty. Believe in him, in other words. He's calling the people, put your faith in him. Know him for certain. This is about Jesus, son of God. And the salvation of the 3,000 Jewish converts began with the preaching of this gospel message about Christ, including a challenge for sinners to know him with certainty, to turn to him by faith. And then we see in verse 37, the effect of God's calling here. It says that their hearts were pierced. The gospel message was first heard. It was preached and heard. But if the Spirit is going to be at work, the Spirit is going to be there piercing the heart, bringing about conviction. This is the conviction that comes with the genuine call of God. Now, there are many people in our world who may come to admit, yeah, I do bad things. Yes, I sin. Yes, there's wickedness in mankind. But that's not the same as the Spirit's piercing of the heart. Because the Spirit's piercing of the heart leads to repentance and faith. Therefore, there is a significant difference between just knowing you have done wrong and looking out at humanity and realizing there's something wrong with human nature and knowing you've done wrong to the extent that you know I must have a Savior and Jesus is that one. You come to that fuller knowledge and it will bring you to the cross. It must of necessity bring you to the cross, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, when the piercing of the heart is being done by the Spirit of God. I think many of us have been watching in the news about these four college students that were murdered in Idaho. And what's happened on Friday is that somebody was arrested or a suspect is arrested. And I was reading just a brief article on this person that was arrested. And they were pointing out this person has no convictions. He has no criminal history. You look at his picture, he looks pretty normal. He's a graduate in criminology, I guess, and he's working on a doctorate. So he's obviously of some education, probably of a family that isn't all that impoverished. And we can look at somebody like that, and this is the question that's flying around. Why? What's the motive? The world is confused on that, but you and I had better not be confused. We understand there is something wrong with the human heart. It is human depravity. It is sin at work. The world may not be able to explain it, but the Christian understands there's a flaw within us. We are dead to God in our trespasses and sin. But God is a God that is rich in mercy. 
And the merciful God is being evidenced here in Acts chapter 2. As the Spirit comes, God is calling these ones and he pierces their heart, exposing sin to them, an understanding of sin that eventually must of necessity lead them to the cross of Christ. This is what a pierced heart under the Spirit's work will accomplish. That person will submit to the call of the gospel. And it brings us in verse 37 to 38 to understand here then is the gospel appeal. This is what the gospel is calling us to, calling the sinner to. And I see there are two appeals here in verse 37 and verse 38. The first appeal is the pierced heart of the 3,000 that is calling out for salvation. What are we supposed to do? They've heard the gospel message, so they cry out with pierced hearts, appealing for salvation. What must we do? The second appeal is the gospel preacher that is appealing to those 3,000 for faith in God's Savior. In other words, they're saying, come to the salvation of God. They're asking, what shall we do? The gospel preacher is saying, come to the salvation of God, which is found in Christ. This is the cry of the heart that we're witnessing that is submitting to the gospel. This is a picture of the heart when it's been made ready by God for gospel truth. And Peter did not leave them without an answer. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Two points in Peter's call. First, that of repentance and faith. The call to repent meant a complete turning away from their old way of thinking, their old way of living. They were no longer to rest upon their own religious works, their own righteousness, or even the sacrifice of blood of animals. That had to come to end at the cross. In fact, any animal sacrificed spilling of blood for the forgiveness of sins would be an offense to God After the Lamb of God, who was once for all sacrificed. Not only was that animal sacrifice not necessary, it becomes offensive. And so to these Jews, repentance means the old ways are done. The old religion is done. My self-righteousness ends here. As does my rebellion, my sin against God. And I turned to the Lord and Master who is now my Savior, Jesus Christ. This would have been a dramatic act of repentance for these Jews. The gospel that these Jews were being called to was the embracing by faith of the blood that Jesus Christ poured out for sin once for all. And this repentance was a turning from the old ways of man's religion and righteousness and turning to the salvation in the cross and the righteousness of Christ alone of that cross. I was reading in um, a book recently, and I just put a quote down from Thomas Watson. And he, he made these words, or said these words, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby the sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That's a very vivid description. Inwardly humbled. We come to an understanding we are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Christ alone is that Messiah Savior. Only Christ can save. That's a humbling of the heart where we acknowledge, I am vile, I am wicked, I am dead to God in my sins. 
but Christ has atoned for those sins. And Thomas Watson goes on to say, it is also visible reformation. In other words, the change will be seen. There is no such thing as a secret transformation of a Christian. It will be visible. And it's interesting here in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2 that Peter does not use the word faith in this gospel formula because all throughout the New Testament, we are justified by what? Faith. It's interesting to me that Peter does not use that word here, at least in verse 38. But again, if you back up to verse 36, this was already resolved in his call to these uh, Jewish people. Know for certain, put your faith, put your trust in this one, Jesus Messiah, the one that you crucified. That knowing for certain is a call to believe. It's a call to faith. And then you move down to verse 41, and Luke adds to that, that those who received the gospel word that had just been preached were baptized as believers. We're going to see this in just a moment, but to say that they received the word means they put their faith and trust in the gospel, in Christ. So what this describes is that the work of faith that was taking place here, the faith that was embraced is the truth about Jesus Christ that result in or should result in a repentance, a turning from the old ways, a turning from sin, turning from self-righteousness or from religion itself and turning to Christ alone. It is faith in Christ and the cross alone. And in addition to repentance and faith, these believers were to be baptized Verse 38 has been wrongly interpreted by some who claim that according to this passage, if you're not baptized, your sins are not forgiven, you can't be saved. That's a false teaching that is referred to as baptismal regeneration. And it is contrary to the teaching of the Word of God, the New Testament, of justification by faith alone apart from works. The clear doctrine of gospel salvation that God has prescribed through the scriptures. And Paul articulated in Titus 3 is that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal salvation. That is the message of the New Testament gospel. We are justified not by our works, including baptism. We are justified by faith alone, apart from works. When Peter says that repentant believers are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he means that believers are to be baptized because of the forgiveness of sin that has already been accomplished by Christ and applied to the sinner by faith. The word for in the English language can be translated because out of the Greek word. And that is consistent with the scriptures. It's consistent with the doctrine of salvation. In other words, Peter was saying, you be baptized because you have been forgiven of your sins by the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, baptism is going to declare something about that forgiveness that you've experienced. It's a declaration that the old man of sin is dead and the new man in Christ has been raised because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If baptism were part of repentance and faith, if baptism was part of the forgiveness of sin, Paul would never have written to the church in Corinth, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except a couple individuals. 
If baptism had anything to do with accomplishing forgiveness, Paul would have been passionate to baptize every single one that he led to Christ. And he'd be foolish to say, I didn't baptize any one of you except maybe a couple. The reason that Peter called these newly converted Jews to be baptized because of the forgiveness of sin is because baptism is a picture of our sins being forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. Just as Jesus bore our sins while on the cross and God turned his wrath or his punishment against his son who is now bearing our sins, he had taken on our our filth. God turned his judgment against his son, and Jesus there on the cross willingly then surrendered his life. Nobody killed Christ. He willingly surrendered his spirit to make full payment for sin, and he was buried in a grave. But three days later, he was raised by the Father to newness of life. He made that payment because, as Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. With Christ's death, he paid for the sins of his people. Bearing the sins of his people, Jesus was buried in the grave. Three days later, was raised from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. And as we're going to see in just a moment from Romans chapter 6, when a sinner repents and turns to Jesus Christ by faith, the old man of sin is laid to rest along with Christ who went into the grave. This is the significance of the picture of baptism. You will witness somebody that dips down into the water, which symbolizes the old man of sin has died with Christ, who bore our sins and was himself put into the ground. But we don't leave somebody in the water, do we? That would be a big mistake. We bring them back up again, which symbolizes, which pictures the resurrection of Christ, and all those that are in union with Christ are raised up in newness of life with him. This is the significance of baptism. And here we are at the new year declaring all these new things we want to do, but it is a declaration for the believer of what Christ has done for us to make us new. And we get the privilege of witnessing that in one person, but that one person is represent all of us that have received Christ and the work that God has done to bring us up from the dead and to make us new with his son. Notice it says here, or Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You have to stop and think for a minute what that would have meant to those Jews, those 3,000 Jews in the city of Jerusalem, a city that had just cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What Peter was asking these people to do was to acknowledge publicly before the city of Jerusalem, this one that we just crucified, we are now declaring our allegiance with that he is the true Messiah, sent of God, and my sins are forgiven by him. That would have been a costly proclamation for those Jews. You know, we worry and fret about standing up in front of people and being a little bit embarrassed about speaking. And again, I don't put anybody down for that because I've been there myself. All of us have a little bit of intrepidation about being in front of people and speaking. But imagine what that declaration would have meant for those Jews there in Jerusalem who just weeks before the city had crucified Jesus Christ, Son of God. This was a call for obedience that Peter had directed these new believers to under the filling of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus Christ. Verse 38 continues. And I want you to note there's a distinction now between those who are called by God and those who remain under condemnation. 
he continues at the end of verse 38 into verse 40 to make a distinction between those who have been called by God into the salvation of his son and those who choose to remain part of this unsaved world, which Peter calls this perverse generation. Here in these verses, Peter continues to exhort those who had shown an interest in his gospel preaching, come under the calling of God. Don't remain condemned before God along with this world. In verse 38 to 39, we then see Peter proclaiming there is the gift of the Spirit to all those who have been called by God. The evidence of God's call into salvation is the gift that he gives of his Spirit. The result of repentance and faith that one's sins are forgiven is, is seen in this reception of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, Paul again reminds us if we don't have the Spirit and if we're not led by that Spirit, we don't belong to Christ. Even if we make a profession of faith, if we're not being led by the Spirit, we're not one of His. So this is a significant gift that Peter says is given to us as God calls us to Himself. And Paul goes on to write that if we don't have that Spirit, we can't name Jesus Christ as our Savior. It isn't enough to see Jesus is my Savior. We must also confess he is my Lord as well. I come under his mastery, under his law, under his sovereign reign. And therefore, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Peter writes, is a promise that God made to his people that will enable them to walk in the ways of the Lord. We go back to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36, because this was prophesied before. When Messiah would come, salvation is brought. God would provide his spirit. And this is what's going to be accomplished in Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 25 down through verse 27. God speaking through the prophet says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give to you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I give to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. This is the promise that Peter is now proclaiming, Acts chapter 2, in his spirit-filled sermon. The Spirit of God was promised. The Spirit has now come. And this is what the Spirit of God does. In other words, God is not content merely to forgive our sins. He doesn't want to leave us in our sin either. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to give us the gift of his Spirit. And now we are going to be a people that responds to the Word of God. We follow the master's leading, follow the voice of our shepherd. And Peter adds this promise will be extended to the generations yet to come as the gospel is preached and embraced by faith. Verse 39 was then and is now, I think, an encouragement, especially for parents. Be active in leading your children in their faith. We're to be active in proclaiming the gospel, whether in our homes, to our children, or to those that, as Peter said, are far off people in our neighborhood, people around the world, people in our places of work. And this brings us to God's calling us in verse 39, the calling of God himself. Like Peter, 
and the other gospel preachers that day, we too are used by God to lead others to faith in Christ. But we also understand that we have no ability to cause faith within our children or with anybody else. What Acts 2 shows us is the power of God's calling through human vessels like Peter and the others who proclaimed the gospel that day. And we are to be that kind of gospel-preaching vessel for the next generation. Peter preached Christ to the whole crowd that day. He preached to the whole throng, the congregation, if you will, that had gathered that day. But God called 3,000 of those sinners to himself. Here we see the general call of Peter, who's proclaiming the gospel. And verse 36, he is challenging those people. Put your faith and trust. Know for certain this Christ, this Messiah, Jesus, is the Savior. But the general call is not enough. It has to be the call of God himself that brings sinners to salvation. And we refer to this as the effectual call of God. The fact that 3,000 of those people became believers was the result of God's calling them to himself in a saving way, in an effectual way. Yes, as Christians, we should be calling sinners to faith in Christ. Call it an invitation. Call it a challenge. Or even refer to it as call. But it's a general call. If somebody's going to come to faith in Christ, it's going to have to be God that calls them. In John chapter 6, Jesus made this abundantly clear when he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It takes God the Father's work here. And Jesus went on to say, And those ones I will raise up on the last day. The reason that Jesus could say emphatically, I will raise them up on the last day, was because of the certainty of the Father's call. In verse 37 of John 6, in this same chapter, Jesus made this claim, all the, that the Father gives to me, all the ones that the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That is describing a very certain call of God, that when God calls a sinner, they will come. It's a vivid description of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of his grace. And it shows those who are under the convicting and calling work of the Spirit. It shows what happens when the heart is severed by the Spirit of God. It is pierced, as this text shows. When God calls us in this way, sinners will come, they will be saved, and Jesus will raise them up to eternal life and glory. But Peter also adds that this work of faith will not be for the Jewish people alone. Rather, those who are far off will be called by God and will be saved. And we can be thankful for that addendum, can we not? Those far-off ones, that's a reference to all nations and all people beyond the borders of Israel. And that was in, in accord with the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis when God said to Abraham, through your seed, through your lineage, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Messiah did come through Abraham's lineage. Jesus was born through his family, but the blessing of God's saving grace was intended to rescue all men and women, not just the Jewish people. And in verse 40, it describes what we have been saved from. We've been saved from a perverse generation. And that word perverse means crooked. 
It's actually the word scolias, where we get that disease that has the crooked spine. This is a description of man and his depravity. This is the perversity of man and his sin. The crooked generation is a reference to the sinful and lost condition of all mankind, not just to those who are living during Peter's sermon. And because the world is crooked in their sins, they're found guilty and condemned before God, deserving of his eternal judgment. The call that Peter was making to this crowd was that those hearing his gospel message, they would believe in Christ, the Savior sent by God, so that they might be rescued out of that crooked and sinful bondage of mankind. They were to repent. They were to believe in Jesus for salvation, for eternal life. And Peter preached in verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call by faith, you will be saved. And this brings us to the end of what I want to say this morning in verse 41 and verse 42, where Peter or Luke actually, in recording Peter's sermon and this conversion experience, shows us what took place. What's the result here? In verse 41-42, Luke records the response that 3,000 of Peter's congregation gave that day to his gospel message. We read that those who received his word were baptized. Verse 41 all the way down through 47 gives us a picture of what that saving faith will accomplish when it is the calling of God that's at work. And we say this again because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to the believer who activates a spiritual life that will please the Lord. This adds clarity to what our baptism should be declaring before witnesses. It is a public declaration of what our union with Jesus Christ should look like. If somebody comes to me and claims to be a believer, but they're living in sin, I'm going to tell them this is not the time for you to be baptized. Because that would be a contradiction to go into the waters and to come up representing newness of life when we're still living like the old man of sin. It would be a hypocritical proclamation. And I believe a perversion of the gospel. So when we have that interview about baptism, we're going to talk about how you're living What's your profession of faith? What's your understanding of the gospel? Because what we're witnessing here is first 3,000 people that, number one, accepted the word. They trusted, they believed in the gospel. The receiving of the gospel truth means they accepted what was truly spoken of God, of Christ, of his atonement. And it was received or embraced by faith. They saw Jesus Christ for who he is. And under the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, they knew the Savior with certainty. Just as Peter called them to in verse 36. Know for certain. Verse 41, they received the word. In other words, they knew for certain. They put their trust. They put their faith in the truth of the Savior. Saving faith had been gifted to them, and what Peter proclaimed of God's calling became a reality for these ones. The fact that they were baptized shows that the response of genuine faith is obedience to the Lord God. These Jewish converts not only knew Jesus Christ by faith, their faith was proved as they risked public proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by being baptized in his name. For the believer, baptism is an act of obedience, but it is also a public declaration that you are now united to Christ. He has paid for your sins with his blood. You now belong to him. 
I'm united to Christ. Baptism is also a public declaration that you will now walk from this day forward in Christ. This walk of faith will not be secret and it will not be safe. And that's important for believers to understand. Our walk of faith in this world will not be secret and it will not be safe. To say that Christian living is not secretive means that our lives are not to be hidden under a basket. It will be, as the reformer said, a visible reformation. People will see this person is different. They may not like what they see, but what they see should be Christ. Our life should not be hidden under a basket. There will be a change that takes place. And furthermore, this walk of faith with Christ in this world will not be safe. Jesus has already warned us, they hated me, they're going to hate you also. And there will be persecution. There will be trouble. Just imagine again what these Jews were declaring when they went into the waters of baptism there in the city of Jerusalem, the city that weeks before had crucified that very name, Jesus Christ. And here they are proclaiming, yes, we cried for his execution a few days ago, but here we're declaring he is the true Messiah, and my sins are now forgiven by him. There was a cost to be paid. It was not going to be a safe journey for them. Oh, safe in Christ, to be sure. But in this world, there will be a price to pay. And second, in verse 42, we see that that faith activated within them a devotion to Christ. A devotion to the people of Christ. Here we find these brand new Christians devoting themselves to biblical instruction, to fellowship with the body of Christ, to partaking of the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. This tells us something of the activity of the Holy Spirit who is gifted to every believer and that spirit becomes active in the believer's life. And the spirit becoming active in our hearts causes the believer to be active in their devotion and their obedience to Christ. That's the significance of Peter saying in verse 38, the gift of the spirit is given. What do you think the spirit is going to do Once he comes in us, he's going to help us, teach us, enable us to live like the Savior. It is the Spirit of Christ after all. And I want you to notice there the breaking of bread. If you go on to read down through verse 47, these people were taking their meals together. So Luke could be saying that they were just eating meals together. But I think it's noteworthy that it says there in verse 42 the breaking of bread. There was an official or a formal statement here, the breaking of bread. And we understand that as the early Christians gathered, they would have a meal together like a potluck meal. And at the end of that meal, they would take the bread and the cup together in memorial to Christ. That was what is instructed by Christ himself. And later the apostle Paul gave that instruction to the church also. The Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. These new believers became devoted to this formal memorial to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Devotion to prayer. It marked the lives of these new believers. And to be sure, the Jews were already practicing prayer. You can be sure of that. But what the gospel teaches is that the access into the throne room of heaven is only possible through God's Son. That is the only way into the presence of God. To reject God's Son as Lord and Savior 
means the sinner has no access by prayer to God. So these new converts became devoted to the full access to God's ear, open to them by virtue of the Son. What verse 42 shows us is that a truly converted believer in Jesus Christ will devotedly follow his leading. We won't do it perfectly, but we will devotedly follow Christ. The believer will be baptized as a public testimony to this transformation and this confession of faith. Having said all that, why do believers get baptized? Well, this is the pa- these are the passages that I share with those that come into my office and say, I'd like to be baptized. Because if somebody were to ask you, why have you been baptized? We should be able to answer. Number one, Matthew 28, it's an act of obedience. Jesus Christ instructed us, be baptized in my name. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Spirit. So we do this out of obedience to our Lord. Secondly, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, baptism is a declaration of my union with Christ and his atonement for sin. It is a declaration that I'm united with Christ, that I've died to the old man of sin as Christ died and was buried in the grave with my sin, and I've been raised up to newness of life, forgiven of sin, and free from the bondage of sin. Baptism is a declaration of my union with Christ and his atonement for our sin. And as we just saw from Acts chapter 2, baptism is a public profession of our faith and a demonstration of our devotion to Christ. It is a public profession of our faith and a demonstration of our devotion to Christ. We are now privileged to witness one that is going to be baptized before us and will make that profession of faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, would you now bless us as a church community to be reminded of the greatness of the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf, that we might be forgiven, restored to fellowship, granted eternal life, that we would be privileged to come under the Lord and mastery of your Son, who today is seated on the throne at your right hand, And as Hannah come now and shares her testimony of faith, we ask for your blessing on her and all of us who witness this as we are reminded of what it took to make us whole, to make us pure again, to make us righteous in your eyes. And the blessing that we have to come under the gift of your spirit and how he leads and directs us. Let this be a testimony of your grace and mercy. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Hannah, if you would now come.